So the world is filled with those people. You know what I'm talking about. They're difficult people. They come in all different shapes and sizes and forms. They, they range from the relatively mundane, difficult person, the person who, who chews their food in an annoying way, to the outright evil, difficult person who takes pleasure in the pain of others. And the question is, what do you do with difficult people? Because difficult people will always be in your life. It's one of the rules of life. When you gather human beings together, they will butt heads and there will be issues. There will be difficulty involved for somebody. When you're talking about the people gathered at home, at work, at church, wherever it is, there will be difficulty. So what do you do with the difficult people around you? You might be married to a really difficult person. You may be otherwise related to a really difficult person. You might work with a difficult person. What do you do with that difficult person? You can't just take all the problematic people and put them on an island somewhere. That wouldn't be right. I looked into it. It's very expensive. <laughs> Plus, inevitably, someone would send you to that island. So. This morning, we're going to try and answer that question, and actually over the next several weeks, answer that question of what do you do with the difficult people in this new series called Those People Skills. Because ultimately, I do believe that there is a, a God-honoring and loving way to deal with the difficult people in your life. But not only is there, is there practical import for us in this conversation, uh, it's spiritually important for us as well, because as we, as we look at the difficult people around us and how we can love them and deal with them, ultimately it forces us to be honest about the brokenness and difficulty that exists inside of us. And it's an opportunity for us to be reminded that Jesus loves us without fail despite our difficulty and the brokenness that we let bleed into the lives around us. So this morning, we're going to start this conversation about dealing with difficult people by talking about a particular type of difficult person. We're going to talk about those negative people. Those negative people. And negative people come in various forms. For example, you have the whiner. The whiner is the negative person who is never, ever pleased with anything. They're never comfortable, they're never content, they're always like filing a complaint or sending their food back, or they have something to whine about. That's why you call them the whiner. And then there's the nitpicker. The nitpicker is related to the whiner, but it's different. Rather than see themselves constantly as the victim like the whiner does, the nitpicker sees you as the problem. They point out all the issues they see in your life, they point out all the problems that they see in your life, and they tell you how to fix your life. Another name for the nitpicker is mother-in-law. That's the other technical term for this. <laughs> then there's the instigator. The instigator is the person who wants to go from zero to I can't take it anymore in three seconds flat. They're always escalating the intensity of the conversation or slamming the doors and quick to get into an argument. And then lastly, another kind of negative person is the downer. This is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. No matter what's going on, they see the dark side of the equation. Everything they have in their life has a rain cloud over top of it, including you. And so you can walk up to the downer and say, hey, guess what? I found a great deal on a used car. I'm really excited about it. And they'll say, oh, that's great. 
It was probably flooded. <laughs> well, thanks for nothing. D do you have some negative people in your life? Don't point at anybody in the room. The answer is probably yes. Now, here's what we need to remember about all types of difficult people, not just the negative people, but all types of difficult people, including ourselves. What the scriptures teach us is that when one person is doing something that hurts or harms another person, be it through their negativity or something else, what you have is not simply a, a bad habit that they're putting on display, but what you're seeing is part of their deeper brokenness leaking out in their words and their actions. That's an important point that Jesus makes, that when people are doing things that, that hurt and harm other people, it's a sign of a deeper spiritual dysfunction that's going on in them, but also not anything that you're immune from yourself. So listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 45. Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, what's happening out here and out here is a, is a reflection of what's ultimately happening in here. It's not just a bad habit, it's part of a deeper spiritual struggle. And I say that for two reasons. Number one, so that you can have some empathy. This person who is difficult to deal with is broken, like you are broken. But I say this also so that you can be realistic. This person has a deeper spiritual struggle that, that you can't fix and that they ultimately can't just stop doing. Our deep brokenness ultimately needs to be taken to Jesus. It needs to be confessed for what it is, a deeper spiritual brokenness. It needs to be repented of, turned away from, and then offered to Jesus whose forgiveness for that brokenness and whose truth shining on that brokenness is, is really the only cure and hope for that brokenness. And, and you can't bring about the fix for this person you, you can love them towards the fix. You need to take that to Jesus. Take your negativity to Jesus. You need a lot of the Lord. <laughs> you can love them towards that. You can encourage them towards that. You can pray them towards that. But you cannot do that for them. Part of our big struggle with negative or difficult people is that sometimes they refuse to take ownership over their own issues. And they're constantly making it our problem. But we can't fix them. Can't fix ourselves. Only Jesus can. Now that being said, how do we manage the difficulty of other people, in particular the negativity of others? So here's what I've found, and I think the scriptures back this up. That negativity in the lives of other people often flows from fear. The extreme negativity in the people around you often flows from fear. People tend to be most critical in others of the thing that they're most afraid of in themselves. They tend to be most critical of others of the thing they're most afraid of in themselves. For example, you see this a lot with, uh, with teenage girls. No offense to any teenage girls in the room. But teenage girls have this reputation of being hypercritical of the appearance and the, the attitude and activities of other teenage girls. And yet, what do they spend most of their time doing? Staring in a mirror, being hypercritical of their own appearance, 
and taking selfies and making TikTok videos trying to prove to the rest of the world that they look good and they are cool, right? When, when you tend to think that you might be ugly, it's very easy for you to try and make other people feel ugly. Or if, if you have a boss who is worried about his or her own performance and very insecure in how they're doing and, and whether or not they're going to have a job six, eight, ten months from now, it is not surprising that they operate in such a way that they make you very weary of your own performance and, and very skeptical as to whether or not you're going to have any job security six, eight, ten months from now. What happens with negativity is this. It's often an attempt on the part of the negative person to engage in a kind of broken trade. What the negative person, whether they know it or not, is trying to do is they're trying to trade some of their fear for your joy. They're trying to trade their fear for your joy. Whether they know it or not, they see some joy or some freedom in you, and they say to themselves, I want to be joyful and free, and free like them, and so I'm going to make them hurt or worry more than me. They try to trade their fear for your joy. And the reason they do it is because it works, at least for a moment. Pardon the crass illustration, but, but negativity is like vomiting. The person who's spewing it out feels good the moment it happens but the rest of the room is sick to their stomach. But the reason negative people do it is because in that moment, the trade seems to work. I feel better for being negative, and I've seen your joy go down, and so mine, for a moment, goes up. But the scriptures warn us about this. It warns us about this. Uh, you see this all over the book of Proverbs, for example. Proverbs chapter 22, and we're going to jump around Proverbs a couple times in this morning's sermon. The scriptures say that you should take it seriously that there are people around you with their negativity who are trying to steal your joy. Proverbs 22, starting in verse 24, says this, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Some of you know this all too well. Your life has been overly influenced by somebody else's dark cloud. They're raining on all of your parades. And if you're not careful, what you'll start to discover is that you start to be negative like he or she is negative, and you start to have in your heart and become in your life a little bit of what you hate in them. They're trying to trade their fear for your joy. So what do you do to protect yourself from that as you deal with negative people? Well, a good place to go for this conversation is a New Testament book called the Book of Philippians. The Book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, famous pastor and church planter, who when he wrote this book was imprisoned. He was on a kind of house arrest. Uh, many scholars believe that he was imprisoned and he was chained to the floor, but he was still allowed to write to the ancient early Christian churches. And so he's chained to the floor, writing to uh, the church in Philippi, and he himself is also very ill at the time. But he writes to them about joy, about joy amidst negative circumstances. And so it's useful for us this morning as we talk about how to deal with difficult, in particular, negative people. Listen to what Paul says, starting in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he's imprisoned. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Here's the key phrase for this first point. The Lord is at hand. 
I told you that in Philippians, Paul is talking about how to have joy in negative circumstances. And and one of Paul's first points in chapter 4 is this. His point is that in your negative circumstance, and in particular if that negative circumstance is a negative person, that's our context for this morning, you must return to the source of your joy. As someone is trying to make a trade of their fear for your joy, you must return to the source of your joy. And here's a, here's a key point. The true source of your joy is not how you're doing at your job. It's not how your kids are performing in school. The true source of your deepest and most unshakable joy is Jesus. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Make sure that your joy is anchored in the person and the work and the promises of Jesus. And here's why. No one can steal that from you. There is nothing anyone can do to you that will kick Jesus off of his throne. Nothing. There is nothing that anyone can say to you that will undo all the promises of God that are true for you in Jesus. The people around you may whine, they may complain, they may be negative, they may be downers, but none of them can undo the love that God the Father has for you through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, in the midst of a negative circumstance, or in our case, a negative person, you have to anchor your joy to Jesus because he can't be shaken and he can't be stolen because the negative person is going to shake and steal everything else. So anchor your joy to the truth of who Jesus is. Rejoice in the Lord always. An example of this from my own life, just a little bit of confession for you. A handful of years ago, I got to, uh, I got to really live out a, a dream. I got, to, I got to speak at a youth conference in front of about 24,000 students. And it, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a dream come true, and I got to talk about Jesus to 24,000 high school students and um, it, it went really well. Uh, I, I poured my heart out about Jesus, and, and they responded with applause for who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. It wasn't about me. It was about the promises of Jesus that we were able to share together in that giant stadium. And then about two weeks later, I got three letters in the mail. 24,000 people excited about the message. I got three letters in the mail of people who were hypercritical about that talk for one reason or another. And spoiler alert, it wrecked me. The criticism of three in a sea of thousands. Now, thankfully, I I had and continue to have some really wise and faith-filled people in my life who, as I complained about this to them, about the negativity of these three people and how they've ruined this experience for me, one wise friend in particular said, Matt, those three people aren't your problem. You are your problem. I'm like, well, I I didn't write myself a letter, so (laughs) I don't know how that's the case. And my dear friend, she said to me, you have tied too much of your joy to the attitude that other people have toward you. And the Bible has a word for that. That's called idolatry. And guess what? That's the first commandment that you have broken. I'm like, well, I don't know about that. (laughs) She was right. (laughs) And she said, you need to refocus and re-anchor your joy in what Jesus has done for you, because no one can take that from you. If you, like me, find yourself 
unduly undone by the negativity of other people, it is a good sign that your joy is tied to something other than Jesus. That your joy is tied to something that's ultimately really stealable and shakeable. And the prescription for that is, is to take some time and to take a season of asking yourself a tough question, where is my joy ultimately anchored? And to refocus and to relearn and to reacquaint yourself with the love that the Father in heaven has for you through Jesus Christ that no one and not a thing can ever, ever take from you. The best defense against someone else's brokenness is your own wholeness in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The best defense against someone else's brokenness is your own wholeness in Jesus Christ. Paul continues. He gives us another point here. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Surrounded by negativity, it is really easy for you to become negative and nasty. And so Paul gives us another pointer here. Not only should we, should we refocus on the joy that can't be stolen in Jesus Christ, he, he makes a point here in saying that you should refuse to replicate some of the unhealth around you. Part of what makes negative people so toxic is that they're taking all of their inner brokenness and they're spewing it on other people around them. But here's what the people of God, the people of Jesus are called to do. We have inner brokenness too. We have a ton of it. We have, we have no less than anybody else. But what followers of Jesus are called to do is to take our stuff, our issues on the inside, and we cast them not on our friends and our family or our coworkers. We choose to cast them upon Jesus. We deal with it. We express it. We vocalize it. We, we examine it. But we, we throw it on him rather than on the people around us the best we can. We do that because we know Jesus can help us with it. He can forgive it. He can speak his truth to it. But also because Jesus, unlike your friends and your family, he can actually handle your brokenness and your nastiness. If you end up spewing your brokenness and nastiness on other people, you become the thing that you hate. And again, the book of Proverbs is instructive on this point. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. If we replicate the unhealth, we become the thing we hate. You know what the greatest outlet for your fears and your pains are? And you're going to shake your head at this because it's so trite, but it's true. If you're here as a follower of Jesus, the greatest outlet for your fears and pains is prayer. Now, maybe you grew up thinking that prayer is your chance to impress God with your polite conversation. But it is not that. Jesus paints a picture of prayer as this moment where you are kind of crawling onto the lap of your incredibly patient parent who, who, who knows no end in his ability to endure with all, all your difficulties and all of your nastiness. Prayer is this place where you can crawl upon the lap of your parent and you can throw the temper tantrum that you want to throw and you can be met with patience. 
where you can express all your anger and all your issues and all your anxieties and you'll be listened to and you'll be calmed down and you will hear God saying, I love you, I hear you, I'm with you, it's going to be okay. You can be calmed down so that you can crawl off of his lap, loaded up with the promises that are still true for you, that no one else can take from you so that you can go and play nice with other people. And trust me, that's a better choice than you than you going to your spouse and pointing out all the things that she does wrong. That's not going to fix your marriage. That's a better choice than you bottling up all the frustration that you feel uh, with some coworker and bottling it up and letting it explode on some unknowing barista. That's not going to make anything better. If you do that, you become the very thing you hate. You become the negative person in somebody else's life. And so what do we do? Rather than cast our issues and our frustrations on others, which is so tempting when somebody else is being negative to us, it's easy to just replicate it or give it right back. We refuse to replicate the unhealth. We take our frustrations and our angers, and in prayer, where we are just screaming out to God on our drive to work, whatever it takes for you, we take all of our stuff, and as Paul says in the New Testament, we cast all our cares upon Jesus. Because not only can he forgive it, he, unlike everyone else, he can actually handle it. Other people can't. Paul continues, he's got one more. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul gives us one last little nugget of truth for dealing with a negative situation, or in our case, a negative person. Not only should you refocus where your joy is actually found so that it's not easily shaken or stolen. Not only should you refuse to replicate the unhealth, but instead take your issues up to Jesus, not out to others. But you should feel free to refocus your life and your attention away from negative people or negative things and on to more life-giving things. For Paul, that meant though he was imprisoned and though he was sick, working hard to make sure that his heart and his mind, and I'm sure he put in little practices in that house arrest, little practices that helped him focus on the things around him that he could be thankful for, that he could give God praise for, despite all the negativity surrounding him. And here's what I believe this means for you and me as we deal with negative people. You should feel free to shift your focus to more life-giving things by putting mechanisms in place in your life that, that keep negative and toxic people from having an undue influence upon your life. Counselors call this boundaries. I have to put in a boundary so that my life does not get consumed with their negativity or their toxicity. Which means, and this is so much easier said than done, but sometimes it has to be done. It means saying to your spouse, I, I will not allow you to speak to me this way. If that's how you're going to talk to me, we won't talk, okay? It means saying to your sister-in-law, I, I will not respond to passive-aggressive or, or abusive text messages that come out of the blue. So if that's how you're going to uh, communicate with me, we, we won't be communicating. 
I, I can't do it. It may mean that you have to speak to a superior or rearrange some, some habits and some practices at work so you don't have to interact with that truly toxic person in your workplace. And you might say, well, Matt, that's going to make them feel sad or that's going to make them angrier at me or that's going to hurt their feelings. Here's the thing. Their negativity isn't working for you. It's already hurting you. But if things are going to get any better, their negativity has to start hurting them. You see, they're doing it because in some backward and broken way, it works for them. Whatever response they're hoping for, whatever attention they're needing, whatever momentary gratification they're aiming after, they get it from you in how you respond. It's not working for you, but it's working for them. Here's how you turn the tables and set up a positive boundary. You have to do something to change the dynamic so that their negative behavior starts to have a negative impact on them and not you. Again, the book of Proverbs says this. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Maybe no one has ever told you that you don't have to just put up with someone else's damaging baggage. We are called to love others. We are. But it also doesn't mean you have to put yourself in situations where you're relentlessly hurt by others. Very often, the loving thing you can do with a toxically negative person is remove yourself from the situation so that they no longer have you as an outlet for their sinful dysfunction. And you free yourself to fix your eyes on more peaceful and joy-giving and loving things with the hope that their behavior will change so you can welcome them back in to your more peaceful and more loving and joyful existence. Refocus on where your true joy comes from so that no one can steal it or shake it. Refuse the temptation to replicate the unhealth. And then focus your eyes on things that are more life-giving putting boundaries in place. Let me ask you this. Are you, are you done with some of the negativity in your life? Are you over some of the negativity that's coming into your life from others? Or, or are you also done with, with being an agent of negativity in the lives of other people? If that's the case, then my prayer for you is that today would be a turning point for you. That you would make the decision today to say, I'm going to anchor my joy, as much as it depends on me, on Jesus and the promises he makes for me that no one else can take from me. I'm going to refuse to replicate the unhealthy dynamic that's coming to me from this person or that person. And I'm going to put whatever things in place that I need to put in place so that I can fix my eyes on things that are more joyful and more life-giving. I'm going to do that. But most of all, may you be encouraged by this truth, that you have a joy in Jesus Christ that no one can take from you. No one. Yes, a whiner can ruin your dinner. A nitpicker can point out your flaws. The instigator can slam some doors. And the downer can rain on your parade. 
but none of them can change how God the Father feels about you and how much he loves you through Jesus Christ. So they can whine. You are fine. Amen.